It's TED Talks Daily. I'm Elise Hugh. On today's show, the philanthropist and Microsoft co-founder Bill Gates in conversation with TED's global curator Bruno Gassani about his new book, which focuses on ambitious changes for the world to avoid climate disaster. He talks through something called the Green Premium, lays out innovations we need to invest in, and shares why younger generations are the key to getting to net zero emissions. And also how his love for burgers is changing. This conversation is from March 2021 and part of Countdown, TED's global initiative to accelerate solutions to the climate crisis. Get involved at countdown.ted.com. Bill Gates calls himself an imperfect messenger on climate because of his high carbon footprint and the lifestyle. However, he has just made a major contribution to our thinking about confronting climate change via a book, a book about decarbonizing our economy and society. It's an optimistic, can-do kind of book with a strong focus on technological solutions. He discusses the things we have, such as wind and solar power, the things we need to develop, such as carbon-free cement or carbon-free steel and uh, long-term energy storage. And he talks about the economics of it all, introducing the concept of uh, green premium. The, the gist of the book, and really I'm simplifying here a lot, uh, is that fighting climate change is going to be hard, but uh, it's possible. We can do it. There is a pathway to a clean and prosperous future for all. So we want to unpack some of that with the author of the book. Bill Gates, welcome back to TED. Thank you. Bill, I would like to start where you start, from the title of the book, How to Avoid a Climate Disaster, which, of course, uh, presumes that we are heading towards a climate disaster if we don't act differently. So what is the single most important thing we must do to avoid a climate disaster? Well, the greenhouse gases we put into the atmosphere, particularly CO2, stay there for thousands of years. And so uh, it's really the sum of all those emissions are forcing the temperature higher and higher, uh, which will have disastrous effects. And so we have to take these emissions, which are presently uh, over 51 billion tons per year, and drive those all the way down to zero. And that's when the temperature will stop increasing and the disastrous weather events uh, won't get worse and worse. So, you know, it's pretty demanding. It's not a 50% reduction. It's a, uh, all the way down to zero. No. 51 billion is a, is a big number. It's difficult to, to register, to understand. Uh, help us visualize the scale of, of, of it, the scale of the problem. Well, the key is to understand all the different sources. And uh, people are mostly aware of the production of electricity with natural gas and coal as being a big source. Uh, that's about 27%. And they're somewhat aware of transportation, uh, including passenger cars, uh, passenger cars are 7% and transportation overall is 16%. They have far less awareness of the other three segments, uh, agriculture, uh, which is 19%, uh, heating, including buildings, including using natural gas are 7%. And then, sadly, the biggest segment of all, uh, manufacturing, including steel and cement, uh, people are least aware of that one. And in fact, that one is the most difficult uh, for us to solve. Uh, the size of the, all the steel plants, cement plants, uh, paper, plastic, uh, the industrial economy is gigantic. 
And we're asking that to be uh, changed over in this 30-year period when we don't even know how to make that change right now. So your core argument, and really here I'm simplifying, is that basically we need to clean up all of that, right? The way we make things, we grow things, we get around, we power our economy. And so to do that, we need to get to a point where green energy is as cheap as fossil fuels and new materials, clean materials as are cheap as current materials. And you call that eliminating the green premium. So to start, tell us what do you mean by green premium? Yeah, so the green premium varies uh, from emission sources. It's the cost to buy that product where there's been no emissions versus uh, the cost we have today. And so for an electric car, the green premium is reasonably modest. You pay a little more up front. You save a bit on the maintenance and gasoline. Uh, you give up some range. You have a longer charging time. But over the next 15 years, uh, because the volume is there and the R&D is being done, we can expect that the electric car will be preferable. Uh, it won't cost more. It will have uh, a much higher range. And so that green premium that today is about 15% is headed to be zero, uh, even without any government uh, subsidies. And so that's magic. That's exactly what we need to do for every other category. Now, an area like cement, where we haven't really gotten started yet, the green premium today is almost double the price. Uh, that is, you pay $125 for a ton of cement today, but it would be almost double that if you insisted that it be green cement. And so the way I think of this is in 2050, uh, we'll be talking to India and saying to them, please use the green products uh, as you're building basic shelter, or, you know, simple air conditioning, which they'll need because of the heat increase or, you know, lighting at night for students. And unless we're willing to subsidize it, or the price is very low, uh, they'll say, no, this is a problem that the rich countries uh, created, that India is suffering from, and you need to uh, take care of it. Uh, so only by bringing that green premium down very dramatically, about 95% across all categories, uh, will that conversation go well uh, so that India can make that shift. And so the, the key thing here is that the U.S.'s responsibility is not just to zero out its emissions. That's a very hard thing, but we're only 15%. Unless we, through our power of innovation, make it so cheap for all countries uh, to switch all categories, uh, then uh, we simply aren't going to get there. And so uh, the U.S. Uh, really has to step up uh, and use all of this innovative capacity every year for the next 30 years. What, what needs to happen in order of, for these breakthroughs to actually occur? With kind of, who are the players who need to come together? Well, innovation usually happens at a pace of its own. Uh, here we have this deadline, 2050, and so we have to do everything we can to accelerate it. We need to raise uh, the R&D budgets in these areas. Uh, in 2015, I organized along with President Hollande and Obama, a side event to the Paris Climate Talks where uh, what uh, Prime Minister Modi had labeled mission innovation was a commitment to 
double R&D budgets uh, over a five-year period. And all the the big countries came in and, and made that pledge. Then we need lots of smart people who, instead of you know, working on other problems are encouraged to work on these problems. Uh, so coming up with funding for them uh, is very, very important. Uh, I'm doing some of that through what I call Breakthrough Energy Fellows. Uh, we need high-risk capital uh, to invest in these companies, even though the risks are very, very high. Um, and that's uh, uh, there is now... Uh, Breakthrough Energy Ventures is one group doing that and drawing lots of other people in. Uh, but then the most difficult thing is we actually need markets for these products, even when they start out uh, being more expensive. And that's what I call catalyst, organizing the buying power of consumers and companies and governments uh, so that we get on the learning curve, get the scale going up like we did with solar and wind across all these uh, categories. So it's both uh, supply of innovation and demand for the the green products. It, that's the combination that can start us to make this change to the physical, in, the infrastructure of the entire physical economy. So in terms of, in terms of funding on this, the, the financial system as a whole right now is essentially funding expansion of fossil fuels consistent with you know a three degrees Celsius increase in in uh, global global heating. What do you say to the finance community beyond venture capital uh, about the need to think and act differently? Well, if you look at the interest rates for a solar field versus any other type of investments, it's not lower. You know, money is, is very fungible. It's going to, uh, you know, different projects, but you know, there's no sort of special rate uh, for climate-related projects. Now, you know, governments can decide through tax incentives to improve those things. But the, you know, it's not, this is not just about reporting numbers. It's good to report numbers, but the steel industry is providing a vital service. Even, you know, gasoline for 98% of the cars being purchased today allows people to get to their job. And so, you know, uh, just divestment alone is not going to uh, be the thing that creates the new alternative and brings that the cost of that down. So the finance side will be important because the speed of deployment of uh, solar and wind needs to be accelerated dramatically beyond anything we've done today. In fact, you know, on average, we'll have to deploy three times as much every year as the peak year so far, uh, you know, and so those are the uh, those are a key part of the solution. They're not the whole whole solution, but the you know people sometimes think just by putting numbers, you know, disclosing numbers that somehow it all uh, changes, or by divesting that it all changes. The financial sector is important, but without the innovation, there, there's nothing they can do. A lot of the current focus is going towards cutting emissions by half by 2030 and on the way to reaching net zero by 2050. And in the book, you write that there is danger in that, that kind of thinking, that we should keep our main focus on 2050. Can you, can you explain that? Well, the only real measure of how well we're doing is the green premium, because that's what determines whether India and other developing countries 
will choose to use a zero emission approach in 2050. Uh, the idea, you know, you, if you're focusing on short-term reductions, then you could say, oh, it's fantastic. We just put billions of dollars into natural gas plants. Uh, and even nor ignoring that there's a lot of leakage that doesn't get properly measured, you know, give them full credit and say that's a 50% a reduction. The, the lifetime of that plant is greater than 30 years. You financed it, assuming you're getting value out of it over a longer period of time. So to say, hey, hallelujah, we switched from coal to natural gas, that has nothing to do with reaching zero. It sets you back because of the, the capital spending involved there. And so it's not a path to zero if you're just working on the easy parts of the emission. That's not a path. <laughs> the path is to take every source of emission and say, oh my goodness, how am I going to get that green premium down? How am I going to get that green premium down? Uh, you know, otherwise, you know, getting to 50% does not stop the problems. Uh, this is very tough because of the, the nature is zero. It's not just a, you know, a small, small decrease. So getting the, the, the green premium down. So you mentioned India. Uh, to, to make sure that the transition, the clean transition is also uh, an Indian story and an African story, not only a, a, a Western story. Uh, should rich countries adopt the expect, expensive clean alternatives now to kind of buy down the green premium and make technology, therefore, more accessible to low-income countries? Absolutely. You have to pick which product paths with scale will become low green premium products. And so you, you don't want to just randomly pick things that are low emission. You have to pick things that will come down. So like, you know, so far, hydrogen uh, fuel cells have not done that. Now, they might in the future. Solar, wind, and lithium-ion, we've seen these incredible uh, cost reductions. And so we have to duplicate that for other areas, things like offshore wind, heat pump, uh, new ways of doing transmission. Uh, you know, we have to keep the electricity grid reliable, even in very bad weather conditions. And so that's where storage or nuclear and transmission uh, will have to be scaled up in a very uh, significant way, you know, which we now have this open source model to look at that. And so the, the buying of uh, green products, that demand signal, uh, what I call catalyst, uh, we're going to have to orchestrate a lot of money, many tens of billions of dollars for that. That, you know, is one of the most expensive pieces uh, so that the improvements come in these other areas, and some of them we haven't even gotten started on. Many people believe that actually that the climate question is mostly a question of consuming less and particularly consuming less energy. And in the book, you actually write several times that we need to consume more energy. Why? Well, the basic living conditions that we take for granted should be made available to all humans. And the, the human population is growing uh, and so you're going, as you provide uh, shelter, heating, and, you know, air conditioning, which uh, anywhere near the equator will be more in demand, since you'll have many days where you can't go outdoors at all. Uh, so we're not going to stop making shelter. We're not going to stop making food. Uh, 
And so we need to be able to multiply those processes by zero. That is, you make shelter, but there's no emissions. You make food, but there's no emissions. That's how you get all the way down to zero. Now, it's made somewhat uh, easier if rich countries are consuming less. Uh, but, you know, how far will that go? So if I, if I summarize in my head your, your book, you're basically suggesting that if we eliminate the green premium, the transition somehow can, can occur. The cost and technology, green premium and breakthroughs are the key drivers. But then, you know, you think of climate and climate is kind of a wicked problem. It has implications that are social, political, behavioral. Uh, it requires significant citizen involvement. Uh, are you focusing too much on tech and not enough on, on those other variables? Well, we need all these things. Uh, if you don't have a deep engagement particularly by the younger generation, making this a top priority every year for the next 30 years across all the developed countries, we will not succeed. And I'm not the one who knows how to activate all those people. I'm super glad that the people who are smart about that are, are thinking it's a necessary element. Likewise, the piece that uh, I do have experience in innovation ecosystems, that's a necessary element. You will not get there just by saying, please stop using steel. Uh, you know, it, it, it won't happen. And, and so the innovation piece has to, to come along and particularly encouraging consumers to buy electric cars or artificial meat or electric heat pumps. They're part of driving that demand, what I call the catalytic demand. That alone won't do it because some of these big projects like green hydrogen or green aviation fuel uh, require billions in capital expense. But the demand signal from enlightened consumers is very important. Their political voice is very important. They're pushing the companies they work at is very important. And so uh, I absolutely agree that the, the broad community who cares about this, particularly if they understand how hard it is and don't say, oh, you know, we can do it in 10 years. Uh, they are uh, super important. You, you mentioned artificial meat and I know you love burgers. Have you tried an artificial burger and how did you find it? Yes, I'm a investor in all these, uh, you know, impossible and beyond and various people. And I have to say the progress in that sector uh, is greater than I expected. Uh, five years ago, I would have said that is as hard as manufacturing. Now it's very hard, but not as hard uh, as manufacturing. There is no you know, impossible foods of, of green steel. And the quality is going to keep improving. It's, it's quite good today. You know, there's other companies coming into that space covering different uh, types of food. Uh, and as the volume goes up, uh, the price will go down. And so uh, I think it's quite promising. I I have to admit, I don't, 100% of my burgers aren't uh, artificially yet. It's about 50%, but uh, I'll get there. It's a start. You're already on, on 2030 on that on that front. So uh, you, you mentioned uh, your expertise in innovation. You have a, a, a couple of lines of, how to say, of exquisite modesty in the book where you say you think like an engineer, you don't know much about politics, but actually you talk to top politicians more than any of us. What, what do you ask them and what do you hear in return? Well, they're mostly responding to voters 
interests most of the countries we're talking about are are democracies and the you know there are resources that will need to be put in like tax credits uh, that encourage buying green products or you know government purchasing of green products at slightly higher prices uh, you know those are real trade-offs and you know making sure that the uh, areas where there's lots of jobs in uh, say coal mining or you know things where the demand will go down having that political sensitivity and, and thinking through can we put the new jobs in that area and what are the uh, the programs handle that this is is a tough political problem and you know my admonition to people is not only to get educated themselves but help educate other people and often you know like in the US if if it's people of both parties that's even better uh the the level of interest is high but it needs to get even higher almost like a moral mission of all young people to go beyond their individual success that they they believe uh that getting to zero by 2050 is is critical thank you now before we continue the interview i would like to take a short detour for one minute because my colleagues at ted ed have produced a series of seven animated videos inspired by your book they introduced the concept of uh, net zero emissions they discuss other questions and challenges uh, that we are facing relating uh, to climate and so i would like to share one short clip from one of those animations you flip a switch coal burns in a furnace which turns water into steam that steam spins a turbine which activates a generator which pushes electrons through the wire. This current propagates through hundreds of miles of electric cables and arrives at your home. All around the world, countless people are doing this every second. Flipping a switch, plugging in, pressing an on button. So how much electricity does humanity need? The answer to that and to many other climate questions, of course, is in the seven animations available on the TED-Ed site and the TED-Ed YouTube channel. Uh, Bill, you mentioned the younger generation before. Uh, how does the younger generation's role in solving this problem inspire you? Well, they uh, can make sure this is a priority. And if we have you know, it's a priority for four years, then it's not for four years. You can't ask the trillions of investment in the new approach uh, to take place. It's got to be pretty clear that even though, uh, you know, political parties may disagree on the tactics, you know, the same way they agree there should be a strong defense, that they agree this uh, zero by 2050 is a shared goal. And then uh, you know, discuss, okay, how do you, where does government come in? Where does the private sector come in? Which area uh, deserves priority? You know, that will be a huge milestone where it's a, a discussion about how to get there uh, versus whether to get there. And the U.S. is the most fraught in terms of it being, uh, you know, politicized, even in terms of is this a, a huge problem or not? So, you know, young people, uh, they're going to be around to see uh, the good news if, if we're able to achieve this. Uh, you know, I, I, I won't 
you know, be around, but, you know, they, they speak with moral authority and uh, they have, you know, particular people who are stepping up on this. Uh, but, you know, I hope that's just the beginning, you know, and that's why this year I think is so important. Uh, all this recovery money being programmed, people thinking about do governments protect us the way they should uh, do governments work together. You know, the pandemic has teed this up as, okay, what's the next big problem we need to collaborate around. And, you know, I'm hoping that climate uh, appears there um, because of these activists. Yeah, we're going to come back to the, the pandemic question, but uh, I want to talk a moment about some specific technology breakthroughs that you mentioned in the book, but you also just mentioned uh, the organization you set up a breakthrough energy to invest in clean tech startup and advocate for policies and, and so. And I assume somehow your book is kind of a blueprint for what uh, a breakthrough energy is going gonna, is gonna to do. There is a, a, a branch in that organization called Catalyst that's prioritizing several technologies, including green hydrogen, direct carbon capture, aviation biofuels. I, I don't want to ask you about specific investments, but I would like to ask you to describe why those priorities, maybe starting with green hydrogen. If we can get green hydrogen that's very cheap and we don't know that we can, that becomes a magic ingredient to a lot of processes uh, that lets you make fertilizer without using natural gas. It lets you reduce iron ore uh, for steel production uh, without using any form of coal. And so there's two ways to make it. You can take water and split it into hydrogen and oxygen. You can take natural gas and pull out uh, the hydrogen. And so it's kind of a holy grail, uh, you know, and and so we need to get going. We need to get the all the components to be very, very cheap. And only by actually doing projects, significant scale projects, do you get onto that learning curve. And uh, so Catalyst will fund, uh, you know, the early pilot projects along with governments uh, to go you know, go make green hydrogen, uh, get the electrolyzers to get up in volume and get a lot cheaper uh, because that would that would be a, a huge advance. A lot of manufacturing, not all of it, but a lot of it would be solved with that. So just for those who don't know, green hydrogen is produced with clean energy sources, wind, solar, and so uh, hydrogen produced from natural gas or fossil gas uh, is called uh, gray uh, hydrogen. Uh, the second priority that you have set is direct carbon capture, pooling carbon from the atmosphere. And the list of, in theory, we can find a way to do that at large scale. Together with other technologies, the problem could be solved, but it's a very early stage on proven technology. You describe it yourself in the book as a, a thought experiment at this stage but you're one of the main investors in this sector in the world. So what's the real potential for direct carbon capture? Yeah, so there's a company today, Climeworks, uh, that for a bit over $600 a ton will do capture. Now it's at fairly small scale. Uh, I'm a customer of theirs as part of my program where I, I eliminate uh, all of my carbon emissions in a gold standard way. Uh, there are other people who are trying to do larger scale plants like carbon engineering uh, uh, 
you know, Breakthrough Energy is investing in a number of these uh, carbon capture entities. In a way, the carbon capture is for the part that you can't solve any other way. It's kind of the brute force piece. And no one knows what that price will be. You know, if it's $100 a ton, then, you know, the cost against current emissions would be $5 trillion a year. Uh, can we get below $100 a ton? Uh, it's not not clear that we can, but it would be fantastic to take the, you know, the final 10, 15% of emissions and instead of making the change at the place where the emission takes place, just do this direct air capture. To be clear, that direct air capture means you put, you're just filtering the air and you're pulling out the 410 million current parts per million uh, and uh, putting that into a pressurized form of CO2 that then you sequester in some place that you know it'll stay for millions of years. And so it's this industry is just at the very, very beginning, but uh, it's a necessary piece for the tail of, of emissions. And the third priority is aviation biofuels. Now, flying over the last several years has become a symbol of a polluting lifestyle, let's say. Why aviation biofuels as a priority? Well, the great thing about passenger cars is that even though batteries don't store uh, uh, energy as well as gasoline does, it's a dramatic uh, difference, the, you can afford to have the extra size and weight of those batteries. On a plane that is a large plane going a long distance, there's no chance that batteries will ever have that energy density. I mean, there's some crazy people who are working out and I'll be glad to fund them, but you wouldn't want to count on that. And so you either have to use hydrogen uh, as a plane fuel, that has certain challenges, or you just want to make today's aviation fuel uh, with green processes like uh, using plants as the source of how you make those. And so I'm a, uh, the biggest individual customer of a group uh, that makes green aviation fuel. So that's what I'm uh, using uh, now. It costs over twice as much as the normal aviation fuel, uh, but as the demand scales up, you know, that's one of those green premiums that we hope to bring down so that, you know, at some point, uh, lots of consumers will say, yes, I'll pay a little extra on my plane ticket uh, you know, probably through Catalyst or through the airline to make sure that uh, that we're building up that industry uh, and trying to get the the cost the green that green premium down quite a bit. So this is a super important area uh, that uh, you know I was amazed when uh, you know I went to buy that you know I was by far the biggest individual customer. It's also, it's also, of course, a, a very symbolic area, right? People think of cars and think of, of airplanes uh, when they think of uh, pollution and, and, uh, and, uh, and emissions. There is a fourth technology that I want to bring up because you are an advocate of and an investor in nuclear power, which is also not universally accepted as clean energy because of the risks, because of radioactive waste. Can you, can you make the case briefly, but can you make your case for nuclear? Well, one thing that needs to be appreciated is that energy has to come from somewhere. And so as you stop using natural gas to heat homes and gasoline to power cars, 
the electric grid uh, will have to grow dramatically. And uh, in, even in the case of the U.S., where electricity demand has been flat the last few decades, will need to be almost three times as large. As you do that with weather-dependent sources, the reliability of, of the electricity generation goes away. That is, you get big cold fronts that for 10 days can stop most of the wind and solar, say, in, in, the, in the Midwest. So the question is, how do you use massive amounts of transmission and storage and non-weather dependent sources, which at scale nuclear is, is the only choice there, to maintain that reliability and not have people, say, freeze to death. And uh, nuclear, uh, people will be pretty impressed with how valuable it is to create that reliability. Now, 80%, at least in the US, will be wind and solar. So we have to build that faster than ever. Uh, but you know, what is that piece that's always available is, is uh, where nuclear would fit in. Now, you talk a lot about scaling up technologies in the book. I want to ask you a question about scaling down. Because one thing that's absent from your book is a discussion about scaling down fossil fuel Productions, maybe starting with a list and not expanding it anymore, with adopting a sort of fossil fuel non-proliferation approach. Because right now we are talking about a green transition, but at the same time we are building out further fossil fuel infrastructure. What, what's your view on that? Well, it's all about the demand for fossil fuels and the fact that the green premium is very high. Uh, if you want to restrict supply, then you'll just you'll drive the price up. You know, people still want to drive to their job. If you know, say you made fossil fuels illegal, uh, you know, try that for a few weeks. Uh, you know, my view is you have to create a substitute because the services provided by the fossil fuel uh, are actually quite valuable. Electricity is valuable. Um, transportation is valuable. Uh, and are you willing to drop demand for those things to zero? Um, and, you know, so the, the capitalistic economy will respond if it's clear, you know, how you're going to do your tax policies and your credit and you're going to drive innovation. Uh, then the, you know, the infrastructure investments in those things will go down. We see that with coal already today. But uh, it, it, it just... Speaking against something when you haven't created an alternative isn't going to get you to zero. Okay, I want to shift uh, topic. You mentioned before the pandemic, and your main focus since you set up the Gates Foundation has been on, on global health. I actually read the letter, the annual letter you wrote with your wife, Melinda, in January 21, which was very much about the COVID-19 pandemic. And I found myself marveling at how what you write resonates with the climate challenge. What lessons from the pandemic can be actually applied to climate? Well, I think the biggest lesson is that you know, governments got to, on our behalf, avoid disastrous future outcomes. And individual citizens aren't equipped to either do those evaluations or you know, think through the, that uh, R&D and deployment plan uh, that's necessary here. And so we have to make it an imperative uh, that governments, hopefully of any party, uh, join into this. 
The pandemic, we did eventually get global cooperation. The U.S. didn't uh, play its normal role there, but the private sector innovation uh, created the vaccine. Now, sadly, with climate, the pain it's causing gets worse over time. So, you know, with the pandemic, we had all these deaths and people were like, wow, okay, we should do something. With climate, you can't wait. You know, the coral reefs will have died off. The species will be gone. And so if you say, okay, well, let's, you know, when it gets bad, we'll invent something like a vaccine. That doesn't work because to stop the emissions, you have to change every steel plant, cement plant, you know, car uh, things that have massive lead times and literally trillions of dollars of investment. And so, you know, with the pandemic, we messed up. We didn't pay attention. Uh, you know, people like myself said it was a problem. Uh, but, uh, you know, now we're getting our way out of it through innovation. Um, but climate's harder, much harder problem. And so the political will to get it right needs to be uh, unprecedented uh, compared to the pandemic or almost any other political cause. I, I want to correct you on the point about uh, uh, private sector innovation because, of course, a lot of public money went into funding research and, and uh, guaranteed purchases and so forth, the vaccines. But that's a separate interview. Well, the Pfizer uh, vaccine used no government money. Uh, that's that's absolutely true. Uh, Bill, still, still related to our reaction to these, these, these big challenges, you know, over half of the total greenhouse gas emissions since 1750 or 51 have gone up in the atmosphere in the last 30 years. And we have known for more than 30 years that uh, they have, you know, pernicious effects, to say the least. So if we could mobilize such enormous resources and policies and collaborations and global collaborations against COVID-19, what was the lever we can use to mobilize the same against climate? You know, we've wasted a lot of time that we should have used to work on the hard parts of climates. Just having short-term goals and not focusing on the R&D piece, uh, you know, we, the last 20 years, uh, we don't have much to show for the hard categories. Now, uh, you know, there's still time uh, to get there. We will have to fund adaptation a great deal uh, because, uh, the 2050 goal is not because that's uh, a goal that gives you zero damage. It's simply the goal that is the most ambitious that has a chance of being achieved. Uh, and we are causing problems uh, for subsistence farmers and sea level rise and wildfires and natural ecosystems. And so the adaptation side is even more underfunded than the mitigation side. For example, you know, helping poor farmers with seeds that can deal with the, the droughts and high temperatures uh, is funded at less than a billion a year, which is, is deeply tragic. Uh, Will, we're getting towards the end. I, I mentioned at the beginning in the book, you describe yourself as an imperfect messenger on climate. What changes have you made in your personal and family life to reduce your footprint? Well, I'm certainly driving an electric car, uh, you know, putting solar panels uh, on the houses and uh, where that makes sense. Uh, you know, using this green aviation fuel, uh, you know, I, I still can't say that, you know, I've stopped eating meat or that I never fly. Uh, and so it's mostly 
by funding at over seven million a year, the products that although their green premiums are very high today, like the carbon capture, like the aviation fuel, um, uh, it, by funding those, you actually you know get those onto the learning curve to you know get get those prices down very dramatically. One area that uh, I do is I fund uh, putting electric heat pumps into low cost housing. And so instead of using natural gas, they get a lower bill because it's done with electricity. And I paid that extra capital cost uh, as, as an offset. So, you know, accelerating those demand things, uh, you know, I tried to get out in front of that. You also talk in the book about paying more than market value or the current market price for offsets. And you hinted at them before talking about the golden standard. Uh, tell us about what kind of offsets can be kind of confusing and controversial. What kind, what are the right offsets? Well, first of all, it's great that we're finally talking about offsets and any company that actually looks at their emissions and pays for offsets is way better than a company that either doesn't look at their emissions or looks at them and doesn't pay for offsets. Uh, and so the leading companies are now buying offsets, uh, some of them spending hundreds of millions to buy offsets. That is a very, very good thing. The ability to see which offsets actually have long-term benefit that really keep the carbon out for the over thousands of years that count, uh, there are now organizations that I and others are funding to label offsets as either gold standard or different levels of impact. And, you know, the price of offsets range from $15 a ton to $600 a ton. Some of the low cost ones may be really legitimate and, you know, like uh, reducing natural gas leakage, uh, you know, that is is pretty dramatic in some uh, cases in terms of the, the dollars per tons avoided there. Uh, a lot of the forestry things will probably not end up uh, looking that good as you really look at the lifetime of the tree or what would have happened otherwise. But, yeah. uh, you know, at least we're talking about offsets now, and now we're going to do it in a uh, uh, thoughtful way. So some of the people listening to this interview may already be very involved with climate. Others may be looking for ways to, to step up. And at the end of your book, you have a chapter about individual action. Give us maybe, I say, two examples, two practical examples of things that individual citizens in the U.S., but also elsewhere, can do to play a meaningful role in tackling climate change. Well, I think everybody should start by learning more, you know, uh, you know, how much steel do we make and where are those steel plants? And, you know, the industrial economy is kind of a miracle, although sadly it's a source of uh, so many emissions. Once you really educate yourself, then you're in a position to educate others, hopefully of, of diverse political beliefs about why uh, this is so important. And yet, you know, it's also very, very hard to do. Uh, you have all your buying behavior, electric cars, artificial meat, you know, and you'll see for all the different products, uh, various things that indicate how green that product is. And your demand doesn't just save those emissions, it also encourages the, the improvement of 
of the green product. Uh, you know, political voice, I'd still put it number one. Uh, you know, making sure your company is measuring its its um, emissions and is starting to fund offsets uh, and is willing to be a customer for, you know, breakthrough storage solutions or, you know, green aviation fuel. Uh, that is catalytic. Uh, and a lot of those funds hopefully will go through this vehicle that's really identifying which projects globally uh, are technologies that that won't stay expensive, but can do like what solar and, and wind did and, and come down in, in price. So individuals uh, are what drive this thing. You know, the democracies are where most of the innovation power is, uh, and they have to get activated uh, and, and set the example. I would like to, to end on the outcome. Maybe we should have started with the outcome, but let's imagine a world where we will actually have done all of what you describe in the book and everything else that's necessary. What would that future everyday life look like? Well, I think everybody will be really proud that humanity came together on a global basis to make this radical change, and there's no precedent for it. Uh, you know, even world wars where we orchestrated lots of resources, you know, it was like a, a four or five year duration. And here we're talking about three decades of, of hard work dealing with an enemy that the super bad stuff is out in the future. And so you're benefiting young people and, and future generations. In some ways, you know, I, I, you know, life will look uh, a lot like it does today. You'll still have buildings, uh, you'll have air conditioning, you have lights at night, but all of those uh, you'll multiply by zero in terms of what the emissions that uh, come out of those activities are. You know, during the same time frame, we'll have advances in medicine of curing cancer and finishing polio and malaria and all sorts of things. And so by taking away this one super negative thing, then all the progress we make in other areas, you know, won't get reduced by this awful thing that if it goes unchecked, the migration out of the equatorial regions, uh, you know, the number of deaths, it'll make the pandemic look like nothing. You know, I think so from a moral point of view and a letting the other improvements not be offset by this, it'll be... A, a source of great uh, pride that, hey, we came together. Okay, let's hope that we actually do. Bill Gates, thank you for sharing your knowledge. Thank you for this very, very important, important book. And thank you for coming back to, to TED.